Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In Act 3 of Shakespeare's Richard II, Richard has arrived back from war in Ireland and is informed that his enemy, Bolingbroke, is nearby with an army, great in substance and in power. But Richard, you're going to hear this in the following audio, doesn't sound worried. He assures his courtiers there is nothing to worry about, that the breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord. He means, my lord, that we are too remiss. Whilst Bolingbroke, through our security, grows strong and great in substance and in power. Discomfortable cousin, knowest thou not that when the searching eye of heaven is hid behind the globe and lights the lower world, then thieves and robbers range abroad unseen. But when from under this terrestrial ball he fires the proud tops of the eastern pines and darts his light through every guilty hall, then murders, treasons, and detested sins the cloak of night being plucked from off their backs stand bare and naked, trembling at themselves. So when this thief, this traitor Bolingbroke, who all this while has reveled in the night whilst we were wandering with the Antipodes, <laughs> shall see us rising in our throne in the east, his treasons will sit blushing in his face, not able to endure the sight of day, not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm off from an anointed king. For every man that Bolingbroke hath pressed to lift shrewd steel against our golden crown, God for his Richard hath in heavenly pay a glorious angel. Hello and welcome back to The Plays the Thing. This is Act Three of Shakespeare's play, Richard II. I am Tim McIntosh. And I am Heidi White. And we are so glad that you joined us for an act that Heidi White thinks is one of the very best in the entire Shakespeare canon. Um, so good. So Heidi, this is, this is I'm just going to like ask you right away about this. When people think of the, the great acts of Shakespeare... They probably think of Act One of Hamlet, uh, Act One of Lear, maybe Act Three of Julius Caesar. You know, we can like list a few more. Most people probably don't think of Act Three of Richard II, but you do. And I would love to know why. I would love to know why. Well, some of it is probably personal preference. I, all of Shakespeare's canon is 
great. And so I just really like the deep dive and the psychological issues, which is this particular act is just rife with it. It can be interpreted a multitude of ways, which is one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why I think it's great. There's not, I don't want to say there's not a lot of action. There is a lot of action, but it's not the kind of dramatic, you know, stage littered with dead bodies, uh, you know, men dressed as women and all the antics there that come from some of the great high tragedies and comedies. This is a very subtle act. There's a lot of action in the sense that a king is about to be deposed and um, mm. and that there's, you know, a battle and that there's Bolingbroke with his army surrounding Flint Castle. And so in that sense, there's definitely a sweeping grandeur um, in terms of the actions of this act. But the, I think that the greatness of this act lies in its subtlety, that it can be played so, so, so many different ways. There's And one of the great speeches of Shakespeare's in this, uh, I know that we've just you know, we've, we've been exposed to it already. Um, This idea of Richard and his contemplation of his crown and what it means to be a king, which in my opinion is the contemplation of the history plays distilled down to uh, one or two speeches given by Richard in this particular play. Yeah. So in the first, let, let, let me ask a question like this. Tell me what Richard is like during the first two acts of this play, and then tell me how he is in act three. So if you're just describing Mm -hmm. him to an audience and you're telling them, okay, this is what to expect for the first two acts from Richard II, like describe his character, Heidi, tell us what he's like. I I think that is a really, really good question. I'm known for being a podcast contributor who affirms people's questions, but that's a particularly (laughs) good one, Tim, uh, for this play, because Shakespeare does something really bold, which is another reason why I think this act is so great. Uh, All of act three in Shakespeare, every act three uh, is a turning point in every Shakespeare play. Um, That is one of the uh, laws of reading Shakespeare, watching Shakespeare, acting in Shakespeare. Uh, act three, the trajectory of the play uh, shifts. And that is particularly true here and particularly as you're asking in Richard's character. The first two acts of the play, Shakespeare uh, systematically poisons us against this man um, mm. and this king. He is He's selfish, he's greedy, he's overreaching, he's arrogant, uh, and he relies too much on his power uh, and he's callous to his own family and to his nobles uh, and to the people. And he treats very lightly uh, the responsibility that he has as king and instead uh, trades on the privileges and the power of being a king. And so by the end of act two, you like really hate this guy. And then Shakespeare changes everything in act three, which is pretty typical for Shakespeare, but here it's particularly dramatic with with Richard's character. Uh, After having just decimated him in the eyes of his audience, if you're paying attention, uh, and made him truly despicable, now Shakespeare turns him into a poet. And he becomes one of the greatest orators in the Shakespearean canon. His his poetry here is so beautiful and so contemplative, mm-hmm. and so human and so despairing. And um, and and suddenly, we as the audience find ourselves wondering if he's really that bad. And by the right. time the deposition comes, we feel thoroughly sorry for him. So to Shakespeare takes us on this roller coaster ride. 
uh, not through the action so much. The actions are more like they, they're more the support for the real star of the play, which is the psychology of Richard. Yes. When we, there's a moment in act two, which we briefly discussed last week where um, Richard hears the news of John of Gaunt's death. John of Gaunt was kind of an uncle to him. They, they had a falling out, but still John of Gaunt was a re- revered character in Richard II's life. He, he dies. was his real uncle, his true, his yes. biological uncle as well. Yeah. And he acted so. He wasn't, I mean, there's so many characters in this play that are related to each other that despise each other. Um, Gaunt was actually an acting uncle to Richard II. But when he dies, Richard's response is so dismissive. And, you know, he gives like a couple of words of mourning. And then immediately he says to his courtiers, yeah, we better get that land and money because we're going to need it to go to, go to war on Ireland. And as you're saying, it's just so easy to just despise Richard II at the conclusion of Act Two, And maybe to start even rooting a little bit for Bolingbroke. Are you finding yourselves before Act Two thinking like, maybe it's better that, you know, Richard II is deposed by Bolingbroke. Do you feel that way? Absolutely. And I think we're, we are supposed to. We're supposed to see here Bolingbroke as the victim of Richard II's overreaching power and arrogance and greed, uh, which he is. And history bears that out. Uh, but Shakespeare asks us to look a little deeper into Richard as a man. And I don't know that he really does that with Henry. Do you? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think he does. It seems that that Bolingbroke is, he's a man of outward action, which is not to say that he's not reflective. He most certainly is reflective. But compared to the reflectiveness of Richard II, he doesn't really compare. Um, I've mentioned on other shows that one of my favorite biographies of Shakespeare is by a guy named Stephen Greenblatt. I think Greenblatt taught at Harvard. His book, which is titled Will in the World, was a finalist for the Pulitzer several years ago. It's wonderful. Will in the World. If you're going to read a biography of Shakespeare, that's the one for me. And Greenblatt, in that book, makes the case that Richard II and Hamlet are kind of on this continuum. The the plays written between Richard II and Hamlet that Shakespeare is doing something that no playwright has done previous. He is discovering, or he's allowing characters to discover a profound inwardness, a really profound inwardness. And of course, anyone who knows the play Hamlet knows that this is maybe the shining icon of who Hamlet is. He's so inward that it's almost painful. You know, he's just scrutinizing himself, wondering whether he can take action against the king who has killed his father, um, mourning the loss of Ophelia while also forcefully rejecting Ophelia. But Hamlet is this character who is kind of caught in this position where he's unsure how to act and is scrutinizing his own worthiness, his own motives, his own 
humanity. And Greenblatt says that kind of um, ability to, uh, to stage before an audience inwardness begins with the play that you and I are discussing, Richard II. And I think it really shows up most brightly in the famous speech that we're going to hear in a little bit in Act 3, Scene 2. That famous speech, um, Richard, kind of, for the first time, it seems, recognizes that he too is a human being, like his courtiers, like the other kings who have gone before him. And in fact, there's this kind of awakening, it seems to me, this is worth talking about, Heidi. There's this seeming awakening that happens within Richard II when he recognizes he too is a man. Mm-hmm. He too is going to be eaten by the worms like everyone else. When it's so fascinating because the first part of the scene, which we heard at the top of the show, is kind of a renunciation of his humanity in favor of his divinity. He is like, no man is going to mess with him. No man is going to depose the king because God has put himself on the throne. So I see in this scene in particular, 3-2, this real shift away from the elevated figure of Richard II to Richard II beginning to understand maybe I am a man just like everybody else, just like Bushy, just like Bolingbroke, just like John of Gaunt. Um, and I, anyway, I, I think that that inwardness, because we've grown so accustomed to it in a play like Hamlet, it's easy for us to overlook what an artistic achievement that is by Shakespeare, his ability to, to convey a whole kind of constellation of convictions and feelings and um, identifiers within a character while still not losing just the pace of a good play without losing the action of a good play. Absolutely. Is that making sense to you, Heidi? Yes. Yeah. And I, I think you're really on to something, Tim. And I think one of that's one of the reasons exactly what you're bringing out, the, the juxtaposition and the interplay between Richard the Man and Richard the King uh, is brought into stark relief. We have seen Richard the King having been corrupted by the sins of Richard the Man. That's what we saw in Acts 1 mm, and 2. That and, was well said. And then in Act 3, we and we have judged him for it and 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 found him wanting right and we want him held accountable and we might even be rooting for Bolingbroke, um who at least seems to have is level-headed and has a good head on his shoulder treats his people well like there's there's a lot of things about Bolingbroke that are admirably juxtaposed against richard's failures as a king and as a man um and one thing that we know about Bolingbroke, as you point out, is he's a man of action. Um, and you actually hardly ever, ever see, I don't even, I can't even think of one time in the entire tetralogy that you get a glimpse into Bolingbroke, the man, into him as oh, a that's human interesting. being. 
He's yeah. all image and he's all Machiavellian uh, pragmatism. Um, he wants the throne. He's going after it. He's putting things in place and you never see that mask slip. Um and Richard, on the other hand, we've seen his sins uh, in very sharp mm. relief in Acts 1 and 2. And now we get to see like him as a human being. And But one of the things, and this is what I love about Shakespeare, one of the things about Richard as a human being is that there is no Richard the man without some kind of contemplation of Richard the king. This is how he has been mm. formed. And so he, he doesn't know how to think of himself as anybody other than the king. Um, but the thing about him is that he has a ton of personality. Once we get behind the mask here in Act 3, we actually see like this soul of a poet, this wordsmith, this person with this very deep ability to contemplate the meaning of life and what it means to be human. Um, and to inspire true affection in the people around him. Um, and, and, and he does seem to have a very deep and abiding love and affection for those around him. And he, he has capitalized on it. He's used it. Uh, he has failed in a thousand ways, but he is a, he is, Shakespeare made him into a person. Um, and one of the ways we see that that's very subtle, but I think extremely important. If I was teaching this play, this is what I'm going to be all over in act three is uh, yeah. the, it's the switching between pronouns in the way that he speaks of himself. He talks a lot about Ooh. himself in act three, uh -huh. a lot, many speeches about himself. Um, and some people find it a little bit annoying. I think that it's incredibly insightful. And one thing that Shakespeare does is he has Richard very often switch between the royal we and the, and the individualizing I. And in watching that in a literary sense, especially with students, you can say, oh, who's Richard talking about right now? Is he talking about the king or is he talking about the man? Or sometimes even in the same line, he'll switch it up and use we and I uh, in the contemplation of his identity, and which I think is an incredibly subtle masterstroke on Shakespeare's part to invite us into this dissonant inner life of this king whose, whose leadership is now threatened. Heidi, I know that you've mentioned on the air before with David and I that you're a fan of the Netflix series, mm -hmm. The Crown. The Hollow Crown. The Hollow Crown. No, I don't mean The Hollow Crown. I mean The, oh, crown, the crown about yes. Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. You're a fan of both. You like The Hollow Crown series also. Oh, yeah. I love I love both of them. I thought you were going toward, because The Hollow Crown, the title comes from Richard's speech here in this, Act 3. Yeah, this scene. So I right, thought that right. was kind of where you're going with towards it. But please, circle it back to The Crown. That's a great show. The crown always wins. So they wins. just released, <laughs> they just released uh, the season four of The Crown, and I watched it with my mom and dad during the last couple of weeks, and I think it is so good. This whole series is so good. And I thought while watching it, I thought, you know what? The whole theme of this show is... Richard II, Act 3, Scene 2. And what I mean by that is yep. all of these characters that are inside Buckingham Palace, the royal family, most um, exceptionally, excuse me, not most exceptionally, most prominently, the queen herself, Queen Elizabeth, they are all wrestling in some way with this question of pronouns. Am I we the royalty? Am I we, the crown? Or am I I, Prince Charles, 
Elizabeth. And it, to your point, this scene, 3-2, that we've been talking about, is Richard kind of coming to terms with the both-and aspect of who he is. He is we. He is the king, king of England, appointed by God in divine majesty, ruling in glory, and viewed so by his subjects. But he's also an I. He is a particular man who is just like the rest of us, and he is slowly in this act coming to embrace that in some way. But the crown, the show, over and over and over again, characters are struggling to accept both of these two things about themselves. Um, Prince Philip, husband to the queen, struggles with the kind of pomp and circumstance that he has to exhibit as part of his role. He wants to be a fire pilot. He wants to be out there like flying through the storming through the skies, but no, he has to go to another functionary meeting with coal miners. Elizabeth also constantly struggling with this. She has strong political convictions, but she has to stay away from articulating those conventions to her populace because it's not her role. Her role is to be the queen. And the queen is not really the day-to-day ruler of the crown, of, excuse me, of England. It's the prime minister. So whether she agrees with the prime minister or disagrees with the prime minister, Elizabeth is kind of constantly fighting this fight, we versus I. And she pretty consistently in the show chooses we. I am the queen. I play a role. I'm doing this in service to my subjects. And I think the show is brilliant because it never lets off from that theme, that kind of tension between we versus I. Okay, all of that is a long prologue to say. The opening, have you, I don't know if you've seen season three, but the, I think it's either one of the first or the second episode of season three of The Crown, I encourage everybody to go watch it, is uh, we meet the kind of young adult Prince Charles, Prince Charles who will eventually marry Diana. Dun, dun, dun. And Prince Charles is cast in a play. In fact, he's cast in the lead role in the play. And guess what the role in the play is? It's Richard II. He's playing the role of Richard II. Oh, it's so great. And he, in, in, there's a cutaway of him wearing the crown on stage, and he's saying the words from this very scene. It's absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful. I think the the opening line is something like, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of the king keeps death his court, there the antic sits. I think that's the opening line where they kind of pick up in the monologue. It just seems so, the makers of that show are so savvy about which Shakespeare play they're going to pull from because this is the one for that show, for the sure. crown. This is this is the this one. This is the one. I mean, all of the history plays, especially the English history plays, they play with this idea of what does it mean to be a good king. And one of the questions I think of this particular tetralogy, going from Richard II to Henry the Fourth, Part One, to Henry the Fourth, Part Two, to Henry the Fifth. Um, what I think that 
the underlying question throughout this tetralogy is can a good king be a good man? Mm -hmm. And can a good man be a good king? And that is because they're two different things. And 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 that's the great tragedy, I think, of the weight of leadership on the human soul. Um, you know, uneasy is the head that wears the crown, not just because the crown is uneasy, mm-hmm. but also because the the weight of our humanity underneath the crown is uneasy. And and I think what we have with Richard II is a bad man who made a bad king. And by the time we get to Henry V, we have a good man who becomes a good king. Yeah. At least that is what I think Shakespeare intended. But there's a whole lot of complications along the way. It's not that easy. It isn't just if you're a good man, you'll be a good king. And if you're a bad man, you'll be a bad king. There's so much more that goes into it that has to do with the culture, the beliefs. I know you want to talk about the political ideology, uh, the nature of the wars that are going on, the the relationships and the personalities that surround the throne and the crown. Mm-hmm. This is These are the things that Shakespeare is exploring in his English history plays. And and Richard, I, man, it's just, I keep saying it, but it's true. It's just such an underrated play mm-hmm. because it has all of it in this just incredible play, plus all of the literary images and um, devices that are used, like the swishing of the pronouns, kind of that thing. Yeah. And then like if you're looking at the, the images of the sun and the sun in ascendancy in this whole act uh, versus the sun when it's setting, the light and dark that are contrasted to each other in the language, um, and also the idea of the wheel of fortune, how quickly one goes up and how quickly one goes down. And there's just, there's so much loaded into this play and particularly into this act. And everything you're saying is exactly right. I think The Crown is a very Shakespearean show because it takes on the question of the institution of le- the institutions of leadership that are juxtaposed and has to be balanced by the human personalities that inhabit those those institutions, the person who wears the crown. And I Mm -hmm. like that show a lot because it doesn't just discount the institutions. I like that it allows the characters to actually wrestle with that and to take it seriously. Um, It has very Chestertonian in that way, right? As Chesterton said, if you're walking through a, uh, through a field and you see a fence post, don't just throw it away. But the modern world sees an institution, the fence post and wants to just dig it up and throw it behind us. But the crown allows us to really wrestle with that. Um, And I think that Shakespeare does too. And Richard II. I think you're exactly right about, the crown kind of embracing the kind of point counterpoint or these two antitheses. We talked a lot about this during the last show mm-hmm. right. um, and it doesn't neatly resolve it. I think it's, it's in that way. I'm just echoing what you already said, Heidi. It's very Shakespearean because it does not aim to resolve these dichotomies that are present within every person that are present within um, that, that, that create a tension between the individual and an institution like the monarchy or like parliament. Um, having been in leadership at a college and having grown up the son of a pastor, of course, I've been in leadership and I've been in close relation to leadership. I've done internships with congressmen. I've worked for a U.S. senator. And something that always strikes me is that the conversation inside the building of leadership within the institution itself, um, at least among 
good leaders is often complex. You're, you're having to make, you know, senators have to make exceptionally complicated decisions all the time. It's why they're, it's why we hire them. Um, it's why they're paid well and they should be paid well. Um, but then outside the building, for people who are not exposed to the kind of reasoning that happens inside the building, there's just always a, there's a rupture between inside and outside. And I can't help but think about how um, fractured our political client is right now. And there's so much accusation from the outside of the building to the inside of the building and so much presumption about um, motives and like reasons for behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, (laughs) again, I I go back to Shakespeare and I'm so thankful for his even-handedness. He is anything but a demagogue. And in some ways, it's easy to get frustrated with Shakespeare. He, he seems to equivocate. Um, and I can understand that complaint against him. And I don't think it's an unfair complaint. I think he really does sometimes kind of speak out of both sides of his mouth. But also, it might be a sign of his great wisdom. It might be I a sign of his, of his great wisdom. Yeah. I, I mean, how can you write a history play that's not propaganda if, without talking out of both sides of your mouth? There's this... Part to your point, this is what makes him great. Is that and 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 here's why, because in the modern world we have to defend to our listeners or to if you're if you're performing Shakespeare, producing Shakespeare, you have to somehow defend the idea of kingship at all, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. However, that's not how it was in Shakespeare's time. This was the age of the divine right of kings. So the to Shakespeare's audience to Shakespeare's culture, it would have been defending the idea that the king can be fallible at all. Yeah. And so what makes Shakespeare great is that it's the, that point counterpoint shifted throughout, uh, throughout time over the centuries, the different things that people, and we talked about this when we talked about the Merchant of Venice, the different things that people will latch onto in a play, um, Modernity is a very, very different world than than the Elizabethan world. Um, but any human being can can watch, read, perform Shakespeare because he takes it below the level of proper or, or transcends probably is better yeah, even yeah. to say. He transcends the questions of his time um, and even the questions of our time. And to just, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to make a, uh, what does it mean to build a, a country and a nation and a national identity? How do you, how can you know who you are if you have the weight of an institution when you are not an I, but a we? Mm. And now all of a sudden that's about to be stripped from you. How mm. do you face that as a person? Like that's a, it's, this is just, I just, I keep saying it. It's just such an underrated, truly great play. How do you face that as a person when your crown is about to be stripped from you, Heidi? It's the question you just asked, and it's a perfect segue Mm -hmm. into two pieces of audio that I'd like us to listen to. They are both of the famous speech that Richard uh, gives in Act 3, Scene 2. 
sometimes referred to as let us talk of graves, the let us talk of graves speech. Um, Sparky Roberts, who shows up um, on our Merchant of Venice podcast, would refer to this as the let's talk of graves speech from Richard II. That's the shorthand. I want to play two pieces of audio, Heidi. Same monologue. Two different actors. The fir- and they play it so differently. The first actor is David Tennant. Um, people probably know David Tennant, maybe from Doctor Who. He's one of the real famous contemporary Doctor Whos. He's Shakespeare trained, a delightful actor. He plays a version of Hamlet. I think that's really compelling. I think he makes a really wonderful good. Hamlet. But I think he kind of made his name as a stage actor in large part off his performance of Richard II. So I'd like to first play his, then you and I can come back and just talk for a second about how David Tennant plays it. And then I'd like to play the same monologue by an actor named Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance, oh my goodness, he was um, the main character in Bridge of Spies, the Steven Spielberg character. Um, He plays this defecting spy, very quiet, kind of a bureaucrat. Um, For me, one of the best English actors of the last 50 years. He's absolutely wonderful. But his interpretation of Richard, absolutely. Um, His interpretation of Richard is almost the antithesis of David Tennant. Let's start first with uh, David Tennant. This is the famous Let's Talk of Graves speech. Let's talk of graves, of worms and epitaphs. Make dust our paper and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills, and yet not so. For what can we bequeath, save our deposed bodies to the ground? Our lands, our lives and all, our bowling brooks. And nothing can we call our own but death. And that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground. And tell sad stories of the death of kings. How some have been deposed. Some slain in war. Some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed. Some poisoned by their wives. Some sleeping killed. All murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath. Little seen to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass, impregnable. And humor thus comes at the last, and with a little pin bores through his castle walls and farewell king 
cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence. Throw away respect, tradition, form and ceremonious duty. For you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you. Feel want. Taste grief. Need friends. Subjected thus. How can you say to me, I am a king? How can you say to me, I am a king? There it is, Heidi. He, there it is. That's the, that's the way. He's looking around among his men. He has only been a king to them. And now he's asking this question after Bolingbroke is about to overrun him and depose him. How can you say I'm a king? It's so powerful. And I love how David Tennant plays it full of bright anguish. And the emotion is, is, is up front. He's not hiding anything. He's in desperate, desperate straits. And he lets the audience see it. And he lets, um, he lets his courtiers see it. Okay, Heidi, let's play. Well, that's yeah. his, you know, many, this is, Shakespeare titled this play, The Tragedy of Richard II. And he always played his tragedies. Um, he gave his tragic heroes a fatal flaw. Mm. And so what I find so fascinating and again, so masterful, which is what a masterpiece this play is from Shakespeare is that he changes the fatal flaw, right? We think that the fatal flaw is going to be his greed and his arrogance and his overreaching uh, from Richard the King that we see in the first two acts. And I think what David Tennant does in this speech is he gives us the true fatal flaw that Shakespeare really wants to address, which is despair. He doesn't, he stops fighting here hmm. from here on out. Like it was when he thought that he was the king and that nothing could overthrow him and that you know, all, what does he say? Not all the waters in the rough rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king. Once he figures out that the Welsh army has dispersed, that Bushy, Baggett, and Green are and executed, that the Duke of York has, de has defected to Bolingbroke, he finds all that out. And then he gives this speech. And from the rest of the play, he's collapsed mm. utterly, mm. completely inward, melancholy, no ownership of his king, of his kingship. And I think that that what David Tennant does is capture that, that, that first overwhelming rush of despair that then motivates him to defect from kingship and, and only be the man. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think David Tennant does an excellent job with this speech. This is the conventional way that the speech right, is played right. different from Mark Rylance. So let's hear the unconventional <laughs> interpretation of Mark Rylance, which I'm just going to say from the beginning, I love it. I think, I mean, I, th I think it's wonderful. And I'm just going to tell our audience now, you're going to hear something that you did not hear in the David Tennant version, which is the audience laughing. 
Let's talk of graves, of worms and epitaphs. Let's choose executors and talk of wills, and yet not so. For what can we bequeath but our deposed bodies to the ground? Our lands, our lives, and all are Bolingbrokes, and nothing may we call our own but death, and, and that small model of the barren earth, which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. <laughs> Some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, <laughs> some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king, keeps death as court, <laughs> and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, <laughs> as if this flesh which walls about our lives were brass, impregnable and humor thus comes at the last and with a little pin bores thorough his castle wall and farewell king <laughs> so co cover your heads mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence throw away respect tradition form ceremonies duty for you have but mistook me all this while I live with, friend, with, with bread, like you. Feel want, taste grief, need friends. <laughs> Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? How can you say to me, I am a king? Ugh. I just love that. It's such a bold choice. Um, before I ask you about Mark Rylance's performance there, were you surprised, Heidi, when you saw this, that the audience yes. laughed? Yes, he plays it very comic. Like that, that sit down, uh, that moment, what does he say? Sit down and tell sad stories of the death yeah. of kings. That's usually kind of like the bottom of the monologue, right? When people give it. Um, and instead, it was this moment. It was comic. He played it in a very comic way. And the whole first half of the speech, he's very casual about. So, yeah, I was very surprised. How about you? I, I was surprised. Just to add a little color to what you said, since our audience couldn't see the clip, Mark Rylance sits and his courtiers are surrounding him. And he kind of gestures to them, yeah, I'm serious. Sit down. We're going to sit down and speak of deposed kings, them, some murdered by their wives. And yeah, and I think the audience is a little bit surprised also 
um, maybe in part because this is played so differently than it ordinarily is played. But partly also, we've just discovered that Bolingbroke is about to overrun him. And there's this, I don't know how to describe it, but Richard II, Mark Rylance, is acting kind of, I take it as he's in denial. He doesn't even want to like, he wants to tell fun stories and kind of ignore that Bolingbroke's armies, you know, their spears shining in the sun are just over the hill until the very conclusion of the monologue, those last lines, he finally kind of faces into it. I live with bread like you feel want, taste grief, need friends subjected. Thus, how can you say to me, I am a king. And Rylance right there, he cracks. Richard II gets it. He's no longer a king. He's, he's a man. And I think that, like, I read his interpretation as Richard II is in denial, Heidi. Until that last, to the, the close of the monologue, and then he finally kind of like accepts the dire straits that he's in. It is really, it's, it is a bold choice. And I'm not sure every Shakespearean actor could pull it off. Mark Rylance is special. Yeah. <laughs> um, but another, another visual cue that really, a, a technique, I guess, that he uses. It, this is really worth going to YouTube and watching, listeners, um, if you want to get the full weight of this, how, how he gives this speech. Another thing that really punches uh, visually is that as he's giving the second half of the speech, he starts polishing his crown. He takes it off when he talks about the hollow crown, gives uh-huh. the hollow crown lines, uh-huh. and then he starts polishing it with his handkerchief. And there's just this pathos to it mm. as he's doing that and trying to hold it together. You can see on his face that he, as you're saying that, that it's hitting him, like he might, he might not only be deposed, he might die. Yeah. And 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 that's actually, as he points out in the speech, a common fate for kings. That was that was normal. Um, and and so that seems to be kind of washing over him. And the denial is breaking, and the facade is cracking. And meanwhile, he's polishing his crown, and then he just abandons himself by falling on the stage at the end of the of the of the speech. So it's definitely worth going to to watch it on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. This, I, I think we, before we started these podcasts, Heidi, um, you told us how much you like Richard II, especially oh, man. how much you enjoy mm-hmm. teaching it. And I was familiar with the play, but going through with you the whole play and kind of slowing down and, and, and just letting the text wash over me a little bit. Richard II is rapidly rising on my favorites list. Hmm. I'm so um, glad to hear that. Yeah. Have is... you ever been, have you ever performed in this play? No, no. But now I want an opportunity to play this scene. I really want to do this monologue because oh, it's just so good. And I just love, you know, we heard these two audios of 
of two brilliant actors playing it in almost like violently opposed ways. And, and it works. So it just shows to me there is a breadth of interpretation there, as opposed to something like um, Macbeth's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow speech. It's an absolutely wonderful speech. But there's, I think there's only one way that you can really play yeah. that. There's all sorts of That's color right. and subtlety and distinctions and emphases that you can change. But you can't play that in a lighthearted fashion. I, I saw an actor in Ashland, Oregon, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, play it very staccato. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. And it failed. It absolutely yeah. failed. Um, because I think that scene requires a certain kind of emotional temper. Yeah. yeah. But this one, this is different. This is really a different. Well, I think that Richard, he, I mean, he really comes into his own in this act. We get to see him, you know, his full kind of, you know, sorry to sound so pop culture, but is like Enneagram for glory, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's, he's like the full on introverted melancholy and something has just derailed him. And, um, and of course, because he's a king, the stakes are high. Um, and it's not only his life that is about to change, but it's the whole country. And that's another layer that Shakespeare doesn't want us to miss Mm -hmm. and we ought not to miss. Um, and that's explored throughout the rest of the tetralogy, the impact on the land that this deposition will have, um, and the impact on future rulers that will, that, that it will have to, to have deposed a king, um, in such a time as this in the medieval, in the high medieval years. Um, so, but here we have Richard, like the beginning of our, our knowledge of him, not just as a petulant, greedy, arrogant jerk, but as a, um, you know, a, a poet and um, a person who's capable of having his feelings hurt because this is happening because he's been betrayed by people close to him and he's lost his friends. Um, And Henry, of course, Bolingbroke, um, he executes um, it's bushy and green in act one or excuse me, scene one of act three. Um, And in executing them, he claims that they have uh, seduced the King and created a a rift between him and his wife. And so the implication is that they have a homosexual relationship with the Mm -hmm. king, Um, which was the historical record doesn't really support that. Um, But it it does add another layer to the play of Richard as a man in the hidden life of Richard that is being exposed and then and, and then slowly overtaken by, by Bolingbroke. Heidi, one of the themes that we have talked about um, from the beginning of the podcast are these kind of two plots, the, the crime plot, who killed Gloucester and will that person be held responsible? That's kind of the question that opens the play. We know Richard II had a hand in the murder of Gloucester and that kind of plot is followed 
through the deposition of Richard II, through the ascendancy of Boland Rook until he actually becomes the king. Um, the second plot that we've discussed is what I've called the metaphysical plot. The metaphysical plot is this whole question of should we depose a king, even if the king is bad, if he was mm-hmm. divinely appointed? Right. And later in this act, in scene five, and I'm going to ask you in a second to read a little bit of this with me, there's this wonderful little exchange between a gardener and the servant to the gardener or the servant to the house, kind of talking about the garden is becoming a bit unruly. And what's really brilliant is that what they're actually discussing is, yeah, they're talking about the garden. They're actually talking about the kingdom. What happens when... The Isle. Yes. This Eden. And what happens when the unrightful ruler begins to kind of grow up like weeds in this garden that has been tended by, by God himself? And by his appointed, the king, what begins to happen? So I, I just want to read this little section from 3.5. It's, it's okay with you. Um, I'll read the gardener's part if you play the servant's part. And sure. I want listeners to listen to what the kind of subtext is that the gardener and the servant are discussing. So I'm going to begin, Heidi, with go bind thou up yon dangling apricots. And I'm going to go down through as we this garden. That's That's where I'll end. Okay. Go bind thou up yon dangling apricots, which like unruly children make their sire stoop with oppression of the prodigal weight. Give some supportance to the bending twigs. Go thou, and like an executioner, cut off the heads of two fast-growing sprays that look too lofty in our commonwealth. All must be even in our government. You, thus employed, will go root away the noisome weeds, which without profit suck the soil's fertility from wholesome flowers." Why should we in the compass of a pale keep law in form and due proportion, showing, as in a model, our firm estate, when our sea-walled garden the whole land is full of weeds, her fairest flowers choked up, her fruit trees all upturned, her hedges ruined, her knots disordered, and her wholesome herbs swarming with caterpillars? Hold thy peace. He that hath suffered this disordered spring hath now himself met with the fall of leaf. The weeds which his broad spreading leaves did shelter that seemed in eating him to hold him up are plucked up, root and all, by Bolingbroke, I mean, the Earl of Wiltshire, bushy, green. What, are they dead? They are. And Bolingbroke hath seized the wasteful king. What a pity it is that he hath not so trimmed and dressed his land as we, this garden. I love it, Heidi. I love it. Even, even this little interlude between the gardener and the servant, it's really about what is going to, what has happened because Richard II has failed to kind of tend to his garden appropriately. Mm-hmm. Well, the weeds have sprung up. And now we're facing the consequences. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Well, and there is 
an overarching question of is Richard capable of Hmm. wisely ruling because he is such a foolish young man. And I want to tell a story. This is not from the, about Richard. This is not from the play. This is um, from the historical historical record. record. And Richard was raised um, in you know, kind of surrounded by luxury. His life was pretty easy. Um, and his father was extremely popular and he was directly in line for the throne. There was a full expectation that someday he would be king. Um, but unlike Bolingbroke, who this kind of occurred to him later in life as an adult, because people kept, you know, getting, getting taken out of the way. Right. Um, but, Anyway, so Richard expected to be king, and when he was young, he never showed any extraordinary prowess except mm. for once. There's one time that he was a young king. He became king when he was seven years old, um, but his uncle helped him rule, his uncle Gloucester. And um, there was an uprising in London, like a peasant uprising, and uh, they were coming against the king. Mm. And in order to calm them down, he was 14 years old when he did this. As a 14-year-old boy, he got on a horse and he rode into the mob. This is true. This really? is a true story. A 14-year-old boy. I have a 14-year-old boy. Um, he is not a king. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, he's just a stripling, right? Yeah. He's, tall and awkward and skinny and he doesn't quite know who he is yet. And, you know, no 14 year old boy is, can bear the weight of, of, of kingship to the full extent. Right. Yeah. Uh, No matter how mature or wise he is. Um, Anyway. So Richard, this 14 year old boy, and I just keep picturing my son, Jack doing this and getting on a horse and riding into the mob and calming them down and claiming himself as the King. I am your King. Wow. And, and that is now, he's now double the age. He's about 28 years old in this play. Um, and he still has, you know, I don't know. I'm sure Shakespeare knew that story. It was pretty famous. This, I, and it's almost like he just doubled his age and made him that same boy, right? Right. It's like, and that's what we see in, in scene four in this act when he is, he's incredibly brave in this scene. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, he like owns himself as the king and demands the love, but he's also has to pragmatically like swallow his pride and give Bolingbroke uh, the Lancastrian patrimony. Um, and it's, he hates having to do it, but it's the only way to save his life. Yes. But he just, every time I've seen it, this played, it's one of my favorite, it's like has just, it's one of my favorite scenes to see played because it, it costs him everything and there's this courage and this nobility to him, but also this sense of him being like trapped like Mm. that boy riding into the mob. Mm. They could have just pulled him off the horse and pulled him to pieces, Uh, but he's the King and he knows it. And he's going to own that in the moment of testing and trial. And I just, that is like moving to me. That's a great story. That's a great story. Heidi. I did not know that. I had no idea. It really is extra, particularly poignant when you think about, yeah, your 14-year-old boy, like mounting a horse and riding into a mob like that to assert himself. I mean, it's, it 
it's maybe it's Telemachus at the city gates is what it yeah, seems like, it you is, know, he's trying yes. to like, I, like, this is who I am. This, I, and he, it's and like this. Yes. Wonderful. Telemachus ultimately kind of, he breaks down, doesn't he? He's still just, you know, he's just beginning his manhood. Um, Cause he's a boy, but yeah. there's this like vulnerability and fragility on the one hand. And then this like grandeur and nobility on the other. And they're yes. both kind of can, converge in that one moment, that one image of this boy riding off into the mob on the horse. And I, I see that boy in, in, in act three, scene three, when he's taking his stand at Flint castle um, and he's been betrayed by York and the queen is gone is is imprisoned. I mean, it's a luxurious prison, but it's still, it's a gilded prison, but it's still a prison. And, um, and everyone has defected and yet he, he is, he's the king dresses himself in armor and presents himself in all of his glory with nothing to back him up. He's just like that boy in the mob. And I, I do, I just find it very moving whether or not he's worthy of the kingship to me is a different question. What I see there is the boy riding into the mob. Absolutely. Um, I want to remind everyone how to keep in touch with us. As always, the best way is through the Facebook page, the Close Reads Discussion Facebook page. It's always light and uh, bright and lively over there. I think we even exchange recipes sometimes. Right now, there's exchange of gifts between people who are kind of regular addicts to the show. So, if you're on Facebook, join us that way by finding the Close Reads discussion group. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can also get in touch with us, especially if you have questions for our Q&A session, which will happen not next episode, not the next episode, but three from now. And uh, the best way, if you want to, if you are not on Facebook, but you want to send in a question, send it to Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. Also, don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us for what is um, uh, an absolutely wonderful scene. Uh, I look forward to chatting with you again next week when we tackle Richard II. Act four. We want to thank all of you for joining us. Please stay in touch. And as always, happy reading. Mm-hmm.